United Church of Christ presents The Gift of Contemplation The sermon by the Rev. Jean Randall Bodman presented on Sunday, November 13th, 2022 For the last several weeks, maybe even a couple of months now we have been moving together through Richard Rohr's beautiful, challenging book The Universal Christ How a Forgotten Reality Can Change Everything We See, Hope For, and Believe In the last chapters of the book, Rohr invites us into the kind of contemplative practices that will enable us to see this forgotten reality. Practices that will help us let go of the dualistic thinking that prevents us from seeing much of the time. He writes, the contemplative mind can see things in their depth and in their wholeness instead of just in parts. The binary mind, which is so good for rational thinking, finds itself totally out of its league in dealing with things like love, death, suffering, God, or mystery in general. It just keeps limiting reality to two alternatives, black or white, yes or no, male or female, Democrat, Republican true or false, and once it has made a choice for one or the other, it thinks it's smart because it has chosen. We have not missed appreciating this cosmic notion of Christ because of bad will or ignorance or because we're just plain mule-headed and obstinate, but because we have tried to use only that dualistic part of our mind. The, the part of our, the kind of thinking that dominates the Western world, our rationalism and our scientism. It's a good part of our mind, but it is not sufficient, and it will never work to encompass all that we need. And most of us are unaware that we need this other kind of software installed in our minds, different from the either or problem solving, all or nothing kind of mind that gets us through our everyday lives. It's a good mind, as I said, but not sufficient for everything. Early Christianity and the mystics across the centuries have had, have had understood that contemplation is a different way of seeing, which most of us have to be taught. We may have glimpses of it, we may have intuitions of it, moments when we reach those thin places in life when we'll have just a moment where our minds drop away. But we need to be taught the practice of it to give ourselves an undergirding. This teaching is the work that Rohr has adopted as his own, reintroducing the Western world and the Christian world in particular to the gift of contemplation. He and many others have begun to see that we need to have a non-dualistic, non-angry, non-argumentative mind to process really big issues of life, like love and suffering and death, with any depth and with any honesty. 
And I have to confess to you immediately that non-argumentative is very difficult for me. I like to argue. I like to find flaws in the thinking of things. I think that it is good and constructive, but it isn't sufficient. Instead, instead of this contemplative open mind, through much of Christian history, we have been taught what to believe instead of how to believe. Richard Rohr points to a couple of um, portals to this non-dualistic thinking that most people have access to even without training. Love and suffering. According to Rohr, when we're in the early stages of any deep love, in the so-called honeymoon phase, without necessarily knowing it, we are enjoying a kind of unitive mind, a non-dual or contemplative mind. We find ourselves open and receptive, unirritated by the non-essentials. At its best, this can happen when we are loving another person, an animal, a place, even a new kind of hobby or activity, and it can open us to loving all people, all animals, all places, because we are swept up into the openness of love. On the other side, in the days and weeks and even years after a great grief or loss or the death of someone close to you, you can often enter the same unitive mind from this other doorway. The magnitude of the tra tragedy changes our perspective on everything. The whole world can shimmer with meaning, and the smallest kindness can pierce our usually defended hearts. Grief can, of course, swamp and overwhelm us. It can pull us down into ourselves. But it can also, and often does, lead to deep compassion, patience, tenderness, and love. Love and sorrow can be doorways into depth and truth. They can lead us toward the beginning of a contemplative mind if we submit to them and don't fight against them. How do we retain that kind of depth that comes to us when we are least defended, most open? According to Rohr, this non-dual mind can be cultivated by choiceful contemplation. Spiritual practices or discipline can return us to unitive consciousness on a daily basis. They can become our daily bread. We can practice meditation or contemplation or centering prayer, any form of inner silence. He claims that every world religion at its mature level discovers some form of practice to free us from our addictive minds, the minds we take as normal. Christianity has long ignored its own long tradition of silence and contemplation. It played no part in the Protestant Reformation or the Catholic Counter-Reformation or in most of the 500 years since. The contemplative mind gets in the way of our left-brain philosophy of progress, science, and development, which are, of course, good and nourishing 
and necessary, but by themselves incomplete. One of the problems is that even our religion has fallen into the trap of focusing on progress, on climbing and achieving. We've, by the focusing on what people should see and what they should believe instead of how to see and how to believe. Salvation becomes something we achieve and religion becomes a form of self-improvement. But in Richard Rohr's words, salvation is more than just a favor Jesus effects for certain individuals in a heavenly ledger somewhere. It is so much more. It is a full map for a very real human journey through life. It is a gift. Spirituality is about the fullness of a human life, each particular human life, in all its sorrow, its love, and its wonder. For Rohr, Christianity is not so much a belief system. It's not about statements of ideas or theology. It is instead a life and death system that shows you how to give away your life, to give away and so to connect to the rest of the world, to connect with all living beings and with God. This long hidden stream of Christian practice was rediscovered in the 1960s in conversation with Eastern religions and most especially with Buddhism. And then it was sort of spread abroad by teachers like Thomas Merton and Thomas Keating. And then it was deepened and broadened by people like Barbara Holmes who wrote in her book, Joy Unspeakable, that this idea of sitting silently on a cushion cannot work for everyone. It cannot be the prerequisite because then a vast majority of human beings would never know God. She pointed out that in the black experience, communal lament and singing spirituals can lead to a very similar inner awareness that produces the contemplative mind. Some find inner silence by walking, some by sitting in meditation. Others come to contemplative mind through music or dancing or running. I am one of the many people on the earth who cannot enter a state of inner quiet through silent sitting. Like many others, this is not because I don't have access to time and space. It's not because I don't have access to teachers who could teach me how. I'm just not created that way. For me, it is tinnitus or tinnitus. I'm not sure, I'm never sure how to pronounce that. But it's an insistent, high-pitched ringing in my ears that makes sitting silently impossible. This is not something that bothers me or that I notice most of the time, but even saying the word tinnitus or encountering too much quiet and it begins. I can hear it right now because I said the word out loud. <laughs> Perhaps with practice and discipline, I could learn to outlast it, to sit through it and get to the silence beneath it. But it's been 10 years now and my sporadic attempts have all failed. So for now, I still need to trick my mind into silence by reading, by conversation, and by motion. 
And especially because it can be wordless, motion is what I use for my going inward and finding inner silence. I think I've shared before how I discovered this when I was a runner in college. On our typical training runs, we, I was on the cross country team, and on our typical training runs, I noticed a pattern. As we started, the first few miles, there'd be lots of chatter and lots of laughter and lots of talking. And then I noticed that all I could hear was the sound of feet and the breath of the other, other runners, the sound of the pack. Then my attention would be absorbed by my own physical experience. Was my knee hurting just a bit? Was my stride okay? I was absorbed by the sound of my own breath and the sound of my own feet and the hamster wheel of my own mind, planning what to study that night, what fun thing to do the next weekend. And then everything would sink away and I was lost in outer motion and inner quiet. Brought out of it only when we turned onto the path that took us back to the field house and we started racing each other and laughing again. Now, obviously, I was awake and alert. I wasn't bumping into other runners or running into traffic, but I was also in a state of interior silence and union. I don't mean to say that I was running around in bliss every single time I went out for a run, nor that that is my experience every day, but one of the reasons I run or walk, because I'm older, running every day doesn't work, but one of the reasons I do that is that I'm setting the table for silence to happen. I don't try to achieve it, but I set the place for it in the same way that someone who practices sitting meditation doesn't go there to achieve anything, but to welcome what comes. That is the way that I go for a meditative run or walk. Now, my mother, who was a practitioner of Centering Prayer, who in fact counted Thomas Keating as her spiritual director, also, and especially when she was anxious, used knitting as a form of interior silence. It was a form of motion that could take the edge of her anxiety and help her to center into silence. Because she was so skilled at knitting, she didn't really need to think about it once she had a piece started. So she could enter the interior silence that exists beneath our interior monologue and chatter. The primary language to describe this form of prayer or contemplation or silence is letting go, surrendering, and it leads to an ability to serve others. It is not the language of self-development or achievement which lurks beneath our popular ideas about what salvation is. Salvation at its depth is not a self-improvement program. It's not about becoming a better person, a more moral person. It's about becoming a real person in your own eyes, awake to the eyes of God on you, loving you. It involves letting go of our well-crafted identities and simply being. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. This death to the egoic self, this is the pattern of Jesus's death and resurrection, death to self and resurrection, 
transformation that saves us. Whatever form of prayer you choose, whether it is centering prayer, silent contemplation, breath prayer, running, walking, singing, whatever prayer, it will feel a little bit like unlearning, not learning. It'll feel more like surrendering than accomplishing. And maybe this is why we resist contemplation and interior silence, because it feels like shedding our thoughts instead of attaining new or better thoughts. It feels more like letting go than accomplishing. And let's face it, that's counterintuitive. We want to get better. Everything about our culture tells us you can and should be getting better in every way, every day. And centering and silence invites you to let go of that very idea. And this daily practice of letting go and entering into silence can change how we see the world at all times, even when we are in our most dualistic, dualistic frame of mind, necessarily doing the work of life. This invitation to center will undergird us at all times and help us to see Christ in the world and to see Christ within in our own lives. Richard Rohr ends his final chapter with a couple of practices that he offers, and I want to share just one of them. One is a very long meditation, and if you're interested in it, I'm happy to make copies. But there's one that I, th I thought was very sweet. When you wake in the early morning of the hours, the part of the day that inspired Anne Lamott to say, at four o'clock in the morning, my mind is a dangerous neighborhood and you don't want to go in there alone. That time when you wake and you can't find rest again. He says, don't go in there. Don't go down the winding stair of thought and rumination and self-recrimination. Try not to avoid rumination by forcing yourself into planning mode either, which is, that's usually my strategy. I won't, I won't go into the spiral. I'll start planning tomorrow. Pause, he said. Don't focus on what you are. Focus instead simply on that you are. Take God at face value. Accept God's good graciousness and hold it to you as you would a soft compress when you are sick. Let your mind imagine that. If, when, your mind starts to play games, know that this is normal. Let them go as they arise. With humor, release them. Hold the soft warmth of God's love against your bodily self. Bypass your mind. Let go of analyzing what you have or have not done, what you are or are not, and rest in this thought, simply that you are. Your own body in its unadorned, unadorned being with no doing involved is the place of inner revelation and rest. Everything finally belongs and you are part of it. This knowing and this enjoying are a good description of salvation. You simply are in God. Amen.